for me, the Romani band today, it's, uh, it's, I think every day I add something to, to the Romani band because uh, the work I do and because I, I help my people and I support my people because I believe that I think that all of us who has a privilege in this world or Roma should give the others. It's not comfortable, believe me. Romatopia. Romata e sintura ceren svato katrlendi utopia. Sarbišaja e Evropa tharate avel. So welcome and Lacho Divis to the next episode of the podcast Romatopia. Roma talk about their utopia for Europe. My name is Isabel Rabe and I'm hosting this podcast together with William Bela. And a big welcome to everyone also from my side. In this podcast, we are going to talk to Roma from all over Europe and beyond about their lives, about their experiences and about their utopia. We want to present counter-images and counter-narratives to oppose stereotypes and prejudices. In the coming months, we will be talking to a number of noteworthy community members from a varied cross-section of the Romani peoples. I'm really interested in hearing about what being Romani is to, to other people because we don't get a chance to discuss this topic very much. For those who do not know, the Romani peoples are Europe's largest minority. This includes Sinti, Roma, Gitanos, Romanis, and other groups who loosely share a common ancestry and have been present in Europe for well over 600 years. Through linguistic theories, we know they originated in India, traveled through Persia, and were present in the Eastern Roman Empire for some time before dispersing throughout Europe. Their economic and cultural contributions have historically been overlooked. Their history is an integrally interwoven part of European history, which also is often mistaken as one of external exclusion and hardship. Though periods of extreme persecution did make their mark well before the 20th century and the genocide which we suffered during the Second World War. After the fall of the Iron Curtain in 1989, Romani peoples have gradually been making themselves more visible on the European scene. We already talked to a number of interesting and thought-provoking people in this podcast with activists, artists, curators. We had very inspiring conversations, but we have to offer more. So let's welcome our today's guest, Nicoletta Bitu. Welcome. Hi. Hi, guys. Hello. Hi. Good morning. <laughs> Good morning. Good morning to London. Today we are in Paris, in Berlin and in London for this podcast. Nico, let's start with a little game. We asked someone who knows you to just describe you in one sentence. I'm going to read this sentence to you and you have to guess who said this, okay? We've only met once, but rarely I found it so easy to bond with someone. And her stuffed vine leaves that we prepared together are delicious. <laughs> I should be should be one of your kids. <laughs> yes. <laughs> It's Aaron. Yes. Oh, Aaron. <laughs> yes, I, I asked Aaron. You two just met once when you stayed in my yes. place during one of the Rom Archive board meetings. Yes. And it was really funny because you two had um, an instant connection to each other. Yes. He was 19 at that time. And uh, yeah, when he heard um, that you will be our next guest, he asked me <laughs> if he could be the one to describe you in one sentence. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love him. Thank you very much. It's, 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 really, it's really touchy because I was like, you know, expecting something, you know, 
from my <laughs> former colleagues, but you know, it's been an instant connection with Aaron. And I remember he was a shy, he's a, he used to be a shy um, mm-hmm. boy, yeah. Yeah, but with me he had a connection. Yeah, true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. And uh, and another thing that was was amazing is he he really doesn't like cooking. He hates cooking. But for hours and hours, the two were sitting together preparing those stuffed vine leaves. That yes. was really nice. <laughs> yes, I remember. It was really yeah. nice time. Yeah. Yeah, thank you very much, and uh, tell him that I love him. <laughs> Even I will. though we met once, <laughs> he's yeah, a very special human being. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Nico, can I ask you? Could you describe yourself in one sentence? Um. Yeah, I was thinking about this all day yesterday. <laughs> you gave me homeworks, guys. Um, <laughs> it's, it's difficult to describe myself in one sentence, but I think. For me, it's my mantra was everything I do, I do it from my because I believe in. It's nothing about career advancement or um, PR or I mean being famous. Everything I do, I do it because I believe in it. So I'm a kind of a believer. That's maybe yeah. That's mm. I can't do something which i do not believe in so okay even well, though well i have a short cv about you i'd like to read and uh you can let me know if there's anything incorrect or if it sounds good to you dr nicoletta b2 graduated in social work from the university of Bucharest. She has been active in the field of human and women's rights for over 28 years, at the forefront of the European mobilization of Romani women activists and of advocacy for the rights of Roma. Her PhD thesis was about Romani women and feminism. The foundation of her training remains the work she performed in the early years of her career in local communities affected by inter-ethnic conflicts. A recognized expert in her field, she has worked for Romani Chris, Open Society Foundations, the Council of Europe, Romani Boutique, the European Institute for Arts and Culture, Rome Archive, Rome Education Fund, and many more. Her work has provoked the Romani and feminist movements to think and act based on the universality of human rights when it comes to Romani women. Is there anything missing? <laughs> Quite impressive, no? Um, yes, it is very impressive. It is. <laughs> when I hear it from someone else, <laughs> something. No, I think what is missing is the fact that I have contributed to the formation of many generations of Romani activists, not only women, but um, one of my continuous and uh, permanent um, job. <laughs> um, since I came, even though I was young, is to to really inspire and contribute to the growth, personal growth of other people around me. So that's been one of continuous line of my, like a red line. <laughs> mm. Absolutely. So and I want to say 
I'm one of those people that you influenced. You you taught me as well, and I, I appreciate it very much. I, I think you're the first person who taught me that feminism isn't just for women. Feminism is for men and women, and you explained very clearly that if something is feminist, it doesn't mean that it's against men, uh, because it's for women and for men both. It's for uh, a, a better world. So so thank you very yeah. much. Oh, yeah, welcome. <laughs> thank Great. you. Baby. Yeah. It starts already very amazing, this, this, this conversation. Let's go back in time, uh, Nico, mm -hmm. so that our listeners get to know you even a little better. Let's talk about your childhood and your, your family. What is your most vivid memory of your childhood? Oh, unfortunately, it's not a, a happy one. It's been an incident which followed me all my life. And um, in fact, it's the incident which made me you know it's it's not sad but it's it's an incident which made me what i am today and i was four years old we moved in a new blocks of flats with my family um in a kind of a new neighborhood in constanza which is on the black coast and it was a majority romanian neighborhood my father was a, a police officer at that time so we moved in that blocks of flats. I was outside with some kids playing and we were playing quite well. And um, when they got bored with me, they started to call me gypsy, like Chiganga, you know, yeah. in Romanian. Mm -hmm. So um, I started to cry because I didn't understand what is going on, what is wrong. And I went to my mom and she said, I mean, I'm blessed that I was born in that family in a way from some perspectives, not all. But uh, my mom said, there's nothing wrong in being Roma. Um, they are wrong because they have, you know, bad souls. And it's nothing, you have to be proud that you are Roma because the Roma are, you know, we are good people and you have to be proud to be that. So in a way, this, that incident shaped me for, for, the, for the whole rest of my life. <laughs> and... Um, I'm thankful to my mother and my father that I grew up with uh, dignity in being Roma, not a shame mm -hmm. in being Roma. So I think I will thank them until I die for that because um, <laughs> many, many Roma in that time, in communist time, it was communist time in Romania, 75, I think it was in 75 when it happened. In 75, um, Many Roma started to be integrated and, you know, jobs because it was a communist state and education and everything. And um, it was an increased tendency among Roma medium class to hide their identity because mm -hmm. it's not comfortable to be Roma. <laughs> not that today is more comfortable. No, but, but that's, that's very important. You said, you know, your your parents gave you or your mom gave you that that feeling of dignity and you have nothing to be ashamed of, but uh, a lot of people don't know that. They they don't say that to their kids or they 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 it's easier for them to hide it to mm. to not deal with this because they don't know how to answer that question. It's it's still uh, absolutely true for a lot of people. Yeah. Even today and okay. I think it's both of my 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 parents because my my father My father's mother tongue it's Romanes, was Romanes. Um, mm -hmm. He passed away. So, but um, he jumped from a very poor, poor Kaldarash family with a large family 
and he um, ended up being a police officer. But a police officer who didn't hide his um, identity, he was always being proud of his Roma identity. His nickname was Bitsu Tsiganu. It's like the, the Bitsu Gypsy, the Gypsy yeah. Bitsu. So, mm-hmm. And he was a very, very good professional criminalist. You know, he was really respected by the colleagues, but he didn't escape discrimination as well. So in this respect, I grew up in a family for whom the Romani identity was something which was like, <laughs> like a public statement almost. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I see. Yeah, you, you once said that um, in one of the interviews I read, if you deny your family, then you deny yourself. Um, one of my questions would be, how do you live or experience these family ties, but you already answered it was really like being aware of the Roma identity that tied you as a family also. Um, right? Yeah, it's not also, it's because, um, how to say that, I grew up, this tied with my family and the fact that my our Roma identity was like a public statement. Mm-hmm. It's like I grew up, my aunts, the sisters of my father, they used to wear this traditional clothes, right? Uh-huh. So they came mm-hmm. in this fancy neighborhood in Constanza. And I didn't, I mean, for me, keeping the ties with my family was like, this is who I am. And <laughs> I have to say that my mom was quite mm-hmm. tough with us on this respect. <laughs> She was like, is your aunt, you don't have to be ashamed of this, the kind of stuff, you know? Yeah. So um, mm-hmm. I was, I mean, for me, it was normal to walk on the streets with my aunts traditionally dressed. I mean, I, I didn't feel anything like, you know, or shame or proud. It's like, I I felt it's normal. So mm-hmm. um, I think it, for me was to better understand who I am, I have to understand my family and my ties mm-hmm. and my roots. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. as older as I become, <laughs> I discover I belong to my family so much, so much. Even mm-hmm. though sometimes my cousins and my sister and my brother, they are joking that I am a <laughs> genetical accident. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <really>? Wow. <laughs> Tough joke. <laughs> oh, I tell you why. Because, you know, all women in my family, is from my mom and my brother and my father's side, they are very <laughs> tremendous cookers. You know, uh-huh. <laughs> these women who like to cook, you know, their houses are like, you know. <laughs> yeah, trad- nearer, traditional way. <laughs> No, not traditional way, but you know, the mirror of their status or uh, their social status or their, I don't know, if it, it's not only social status, it's their teaching for life. And I'm like, you know, I'm the one who never speaks about that. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> or do things, or do these things. Sometimes we joke one with the other and they say, you're a genetic accident. You're not, you're a woman who is not part of this family for sure. I don't know what I'm <laughs> doing. Uh, what was it like? What was it like in school oh, for you? Oh, God. In school was... <laughs> So, as I told you, our Romani identity was not, it was a public statement. So everybody knew that we are Roman because mm-hmm. my father was quite well known in the, um, the, in the town. So in school, uh, I mean, the fact that I grew in that family was also a blessing, but it's also a curse because all my life I had to prove that Roma are different than the others are thinking that they are. So in the sense, all my childhood was marked by the fact that I, 
was a little bit, I felt the pressure to prove that I am the best one. All my childhood and all my school was marked by that. that I had to prove all the time to the others that Roma could be different than they think that Roma are. It was a mixture of good things and bad things, my, my, my school uh, years. Uh, I was really loved by some teachers. I think most of the teachers loved me because I was a good kid <laughs> and a, a smart one, but some of them not. I entered in fights. You can imagine. You, you cannot imagine this about me now. Kiss <laughs> 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 for Nico, anti-violent. I was quite mm-hmm. the fighter when I was a child. Oh, <laughs> and, oh really? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. I, I entered once in a fight with uh, two boys, and uh, I remember once I, I entered in a very physical fight with uh, three neighbors in the in our flat. No, blocks of that because um, they called names to my sister. So I was defending my sister. <laughs> so it's like, it's interesting because um, I, I forgot about this. <laughs> yeah, and, and also you said, uh, you once said, we Roma are no fighters. We are not good in this. We are survivors, but no fighters. Fighters <laughs> in the sense, I, I meant fighters in the sense that, you know, organized fights, no. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like we are fighters, we are survivors, but I meant fighters in an organized way. Yeah. Later at university, how how was it? Was it still the same kind of uh, atmosphere? You had to prove yourself, and some professors were more openly discriminatory than others, or or. Uh, no, I mean at university it was so different because when I started social work in university, I was already working. I was already an activist. So I was working in 91. I have started working uh, 20 kilometers away from Constanza in Mihail Koganichano, where houses of Roma were burned. So that's the time when I met Nikolai Gheorghe. I was already working as an activist. So when I entered the university, was like, basically was kind of a theorizing, uh, learning, theories about what I was already doing. So the university was really different. I, I I don't remember in university to have some instances like that. I, I had I had some <laughs> I had some really funny story because one of my teachers, uh, my professors, it was also a police officer and a high rank police officer who was teaching law. Uh, you know, university. And um, before he became, I mean, before I met him as a teacher, I met him in a, in a, in a seminar. <laughs> and it was a discussion about the name Roma and Gypsy, you know, because Romania has been always uh, this discussion about Roma and Romanians and the confusion about Roma and Romania. And that was, again, this discussion about how Roma are destroying the image of Romania outside and that everybody confused Roma with Romania. Anyway, they wanted to mm-hmm. name in Tiga. So we had a fight <laughs> during the seminar. And then when I have seen him in the, in the classroom, I was like freezing. freezing. <laughs> and he started to teach. I was okay. I mean, but then we had a kind of a, Uh, class and one of the colleagues said something about he had the questions about Tigan you know and my teacher was like 
oh, be careful how you talk. Tomorrow you can read the newspapers. <laughs> Oh, that's good. That's Great, good. you convinced him. <laughs> you have a colleague here reporting us. Very good. <laughs> that was really funny. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Nico, you mentioned Nicolai George. Uh, you've been married. He's one of the most important Roma civil rights activists, passed away in 2013. How does a marriage work between two people whose activism is such a fundamental part of their lives? Because you, you also once said that The work, and in the beginning you emphasized this, your work as an activist is not just a job, it's your life. Are there political and intellectual debates going on all the time, 24 hours a day between <laughs> you as a couple? How was it? <laughs> um, first, I have to say that I think I was blessed to have in this life, to have had such a, to have met such love. It was not easy. <laughs> it was kind of a... Um, How to say? I know it's, I'm really emotional now because this year was like seven years since he died, and I think I we miss him more than ever. Um, mm. It was a uh, it was really funny because Nikola in the private life was a wonderful father first of all to all the others. If you could see him in the meetings and then with his daughters, uh, with our daughters, it was really <laughs> another person. And yes, we had debates, intellectual debates. And in my last interview, with, uh, I think I've said that that part of my Romanistan and uh, all the debates we had, it's part of the debates I have had with him. But it was, um, in a way, how to say, not all the time debates or intellectual debates, but I mean, we, we, we build a lot around us. Um, so... Mm -hmm. I have this feeling of um, not living a life for nothing, you know, mm. both of us. What I'm really sorry is that he didn't have time to write because he was running from a place to another. And that's one of the, the lessons I've learned from him is that um, I need to concentrate more on things I need to do and I believe in them <clears throat> than to let myself thrown in different directions and lose myself in a way. Mm. But he was a brilliant mind. He had a brilliant mind. I think he was a genius. He did things. I mean, as a husband, was not very comfortable sometimes <laughs> because he was like perceiving me as a, I was not a different person. We were kind of a whole, an inseparable whole, like, you know, these two halves which come together and it's like you have a one hole and he perceived it as, as like one hole and if I wanted to do something different <laughs> mm -hmm. then it was a problem <laughs> <laughs> it was really how to say yeah it was a hole and he perceived me like, uh, sometimes a continuation of himself and then when I that's these are the instances when I reacted because uh, I wanted to always Person. And I, I succeeded to be different than him. That's one of the things I am proud of is that people tended to copy him, you know, because he was a role mm -hmm. model. But I have succeeded to remain myself. He influenced my thinking a lot, of course. But mm. in a way, our, our beliefs, we were the people who believed in what we did. We yeah. believers, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think you said once that he was questioning your feminism, saying that with this Romani women movement, you're splitting the Romani movement. I found this very, very interesting. Yeah. 
And yeah. I was wondering if this was a singular opinion or did you hear this accusation um, from many sides, like splitting the, mo the movement? Oh, yeah. he, he didn't say that I'm, I was splitting the, mo the movement. The other men, other Romani men colleagues. Mm. He questioned my feminism because he supported my feminism in the beginning um, very mm. much. I don't know if I said this ever, but I was in a privileged position in conversation with other Romani activists when I started my feminism, proving my dedication for the cause because it was 97, 98, something like that, 99. Mm -hmm. And I was already proving my dedication for the Roma cause. Secondly, it was because I was married to Nikolaev. The first privilege came from the fact that I was married and had two kids already. So mm -hmm. I, like, from the social point of view of uh, women roles, I was, like, ticking all the boxes. Mm -hmm. That's why, in a way, and his support in the beginning, because he was a feminist as well. The mm -hmm. questioning and the debate come to be, uh, in you know, when, when we had problems, you know, couple, you know, And of course, it, it's sometimes easier to blame an ideology than to, than to, um, to really analyze the behavior of the partners, both of us. And when he got sick, he got sick, we came back from Warsaw, he got sick with cancer, He's be, he was not very well received in Romania, like he didn't find his place back in Romania. It was quite a very dark period for, um, for him especially. Hmm. He was depressed. Uh, he had a severe depression, I think. In, um, and I mean, I was finding my way. I went back to work with colleagues in Romani Greece. So in a way, all his um, frustrations, and I think the, the disease was also already installed in his body, um, cancer. So um, in that period, he started to question my family. And in the beginning, I was upset, but then I, I started to debate with him. And that was, I think, the most amazing thing about Nikolai was he had this, you know, intellectual discipline of debating. He was not getting upset with you. I mean, with me he was, but with others not. <laughs> but I've learned from him to debate and to listen to, you know, others. Then I said, okay, let's let's talk about that. Let's do something about that. I mean, not fighting, but you know, let's do something like that for that. But he was blaming the feminists for some of my attitude, something like that. Mm -hmm. And I have to try to explain that it's nothing to do with my feminism. It's because of his behavior, but, you know, <laughs> you know, it was really, um, it's the first time when I said that to someone in an interview, but I think it's time to say that. It's not, it was not easy. I mean, four years of treatment and everything was really difficult for the whole family. Mm -hmm. And in the same time, his son from the previous marriage died during these four years. So mm -hmm. we had quite a rough time. And then in the last year of his life, I don't know how it came to me. I said, okay, I don't know how long he will survive, will be alive. Then I, I told to myself, I will change my attitude and I will take everything that comes from him and create space for him to, to do something. You know? So together with uh, uh, Ciprian, Uh, Nicola and 
with Florina Asture and other other colleagues. We have started and with colleagues and from from the we, I was in a PhD program in that time. Um, we started to cultivate relation with him. It was Adrian Skiop, Elena, Elena Radu, and Andrea Braga, and Rian Tudor. So we were kind of a small group of PhD students in the time. All activists, most of us, not Roma. They were not Roma too in the, that group. We started to cultivate relationships with him and debates with him. That's how we started the idea of a new Romani pen, you know, and how a Romani pen will look from a feminist perspective or how a, Romani, a new modern Romani pen should be reinvented from a political perspective, not only from a traditional cultural or different. In a way, I'm really happy that I, I, I took the decision to humbly uh, receive everything what comes from him, because one year later he died. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, he died at home with us. It's good. Yeah. Good. With the, so the daughters, the whole family was with him then. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. yeah, it's still a kind of commemoration day, the day he died. Each year, um, the whole Roma community is um, commemorating. I don't think it's as much as he should deserve. It's 8th of August or 12th of November is his birthday, because sometimes we said it's better to... Immediately after he died, I had this impression that everybody's waiting for something from me. Um, mm-hmm. And... It's interesting because we had a discussion um, before he died about um, that I, I don't have to prove anything to anyone, he told me. Hmm. So no longer. <laughs> he asked me to don't try to prove anything to anyone any longer because hmm. I have all my life was a, a kind of demonstration. Um, I had his blessing not to. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's interesting. No, I mean, it's very relevant for the specific situation, but uh, it's interesting that you say that because this is a theme that comes up from from our other guests as well mm. in, in various ways that, uh, you know, whether it's because of their experience or their age or their specific situation in life, but we've talked to different Roma people on our podcast and They also expressed this, you know, uh, I don't need to prove anything to anybody or, or mm. I, I certainly feel the same way in terms of you get to a certain point and uh, you, you, you work hard, you want to achieve something, but in your personal life and, and regarding what you've uh, experienced, there's something that remains private or there's something that remains uh, unspoken, um, but that's nobody's business or uh, you don't have to. Um, show some kind of accomplishment or, or demonstrate something uh, because that's life and you have the right to have a good life. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think it's something which was like for us activists, we, we lived our lives under the pressure all the time, under the pressure to, to defend our people, under the pressure to educate others and to, de- to, to really high fight with the systems and everything. So in a way, he took the pressure off my shoulders during that discussion in personal life. So I, I mean, I cannot separate really my personal life from the movement, but anyway, yeah. it has been, it's been, it's been a struggle for me to do that. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> he in a way gave me the blessing before he died that I don't have to do in personal life nothing to demonstrate something to others. He asked me to be myself. <laughs> 
It's interesting because one of my, uh, our common friend who is very old in, since 92 from uh, North Romania, she, she was very close to both of us and he, she, she called me last year and she told me that he, she dreamed of him and told, telling her to tell me <laughs> to start writing. <laughs> oh. <laughs> It was really funny. Anyway, <laughs> dream, yeah. Funny, not funny, anyway. <laughs> so let's make a little jump. Mm -hmm. You're in the UK now, right? And you travel a lot and your children studied abroad and also in, in your uh, job as an activist, you're here and there all over Europe. Uh, where do you really feel at home? <laughs> That's a very difficult question because um, even here being with all my family, I don't feel at home. Mm -hmm. So I think I feel I feel at home where, wherever I am with my kids. But it's because my kids are twin, ah, young adults, 25 years old, <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> I have to redefine my home <laughs> in a way. Mm -hmm. I mean, for a time, for the last let's say two years, I think I felt home in the arms of my current partner. He's away. He's a sailor. <laughs> mm -hmm. Um, so he's traveling a lot as well <laughs> as oh, a yeah. sailor <laughs> yeah. I don't know I think I feel you know when I feel at home I feel at home when I, I have this for me home is nothing physical for me home is the when I have the feeling of fulfillment and it's interesting because I have not run away but I, I left one year ago from Romania and from taking a break from the Roma elite's mobilization um, because I, I couldn't find myself. So metaphorically taking a break. And I mm -hmm. wanted to do something so differently. And I ended up applying for a job for a... I, I, I worked in a warehouse for two mm -hmm. months, like all immigrants who are coming here. <laughs> so um, it was a very, very interesting experience and I, I really valued immensely. You know me, I, am, I was modest all my life. I didn't cry about the things I have done. But um, that experience gave me, you know, I understand what means, what humble means, you know, mm. and how life can change from a day to another. You are today the famous Nico and you can be the, the nobody. I realized that um, I can be nobody any minute. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, I, I experienced you or I got to know you that way as well. Um, al already a couple of years ago, it started that you were thinking about taking a break and you did. You uh, withdraw from a lot of positions in boards, etc. And I also remember that once you were thinking about opening a Romani restaurant in Berlin. <laughs> Now you're working you're working in, in a warehouse in London. So yes, you can be anyone anytime. <laughs> Got the impression. <laughs> Nico, were you in the in the in the UK for the first lockdown or uh, the beginning of the pandemic? Um, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, and then I apply for a job to uh, uh, the uh, St. Mungo's and it's a foundation, um, the, the biggest foundation in the UK, who, which works with the homeless people. So I said, okay, I mean, I, all my life I've done this helping others and it's like I remain faithful to myself. So I go and work with homeless people. So mm -hmm. when they recruited me, they said, oh, God. You are amazing and everything. And I said, okay. <laughs> I passed for the test, of course. And then they assigned me to the Westminster outreach team. 
And mm-hmm. guess what? 120 Roma rough sleeping in the center of London. Oh, really? I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> Like, again <laughs> what is going on <laughs> and it's interesting because my daughters are like they said okay you are in a warehouse what kind of exercise is this mom tell us <laughs> you think you can escape your whole life <laughs> like, you know, no you can't like, <laughs> so in a way coming here in the UK and I've, I've worked all the pandemic with people on the streets and mm-hmm. daily contact with Roma it, it makes me understand our people because I think I was so far away from the reality of our people. And I think we are sometimes very far away from the reality of our people living and our people mental universe. And um, being here and working, with them, I understand the limitations of the mental universe. What are the priorities of our people? So... In a way, this whole experience of going away, I was very proud of me that I was like 50 years old. You took every, I took everything from zero. I gave up all my social status back home in Romania where, while I was invited to go in politics or to have public, uh, uh, to, to go in government. So I was very proud of myself that when I was 50, I, I stuck with my decision to take a break. In the essence, it's like to understand who I am. Well, mm. this pandemic probably has contributed to that, but how? How has the pandemic maybe affected your thinking and your, do you think it's helped uh, the fact that uh, you've had more time to think about some of these more personal issues? Or I think people would like to know how has the pandemic affected you? Huh. I didn't have time to reflect because I was working all the time. <laughs> I was <laughs> on the street. <laughs> I think it affected, uh, on personal level, it affected my relationship with my partner immensely. But there's another discussion, but it did affect it uh, with my current partner. So um, in a professional or in a, in a very personal way, I think the whole pandemic for me, it's really related, for, for example, with this. Um, it remembered me of my childhood readings of, because I used to read when I was like 11, 12, 13, like teenager, these science fiction books, which is in 80s, you know, science fiction books yeah and in a way mm-hmm. i felt in that now when mm-hmm. covid came mm-hmm. that i live in that science fiction literature i used yeah. to, mm-hmm. to, to yeah. it's also um it made me it made me more conscious and more alert than than usual the pandemic made me more alert to the politics and I have seen how pandemics was used for by politics and people of power. And I was all the time afraid that of this dictatorship came into coming into place in different forms, with democratic votes in place, but <laughs> confirming the, the dictatorship or this whole uh, whole craziness with Trump in US and mm-hmm. with here with uh, Boris Johnson's the connection between the two the UK and US and the Brexit and it was really kind of for me a rearranging of the whole the whole world the way we we know it so the this kind of the pandemic was for me was more a time to reflect on how the world is changing and how dangerous. Uh, how the danger is across the corner 
mm. of our liberties and our freedoms and of our political systems as we know it. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I was really, really worried and had discussions with my family about that. And they said, "You are." They said that I, I, I'm crazy in the beginning. And after a couple of months, they said they came to me and said, "Like you're right. Look what they do." <laughs> yeah. So, um, but in the same time, for the rough sleepers was uh, an opportunity because the local authorities put them inside. Yeah. So mm-hmm. in a way. In the whole craziness of this crisis, another utopia came to life as to have everybody inside the streets, you know, as an utopia we work for. So it was really interesting to see these two two sides of the pandemic. And also, yeah. it's for me, it's self-discovered that I, I still have the power of resilience. I didn't know that I, have, I still have this power in me. Um, because mm-hmm. it was a comfortable activism. I was in conferences, in, you know, doing good things, of course. Uh, I w- will never say that I've done bad things or that it was not important what I have done. It's far from me to say that everything I've done in the last 10 years with Roma Museum, the European Roma Institute for Arts and Culture, and my influence in everything is important. I, I do not want to annulate the importance of these things. But mm. in the same time, like, you know, um, being here uh, with people close, it made me realize that I haven't lost this sense of resilience, which I had it in the beginning when I started to be an artist. I, I go, I sometimes I got sick, you know, um, Isabel knows better that. Mm. <laughs> yes, I remember. My yeah. body, because of the autoimmune disease I have, my body sometimes has claims its right to rest. You know, it's it's like... I discovered myself in a way, in different ways. And I, I'm really, I came to peace with myself. Yeah, it's really interesting, like that the pandemic is also for all of us um, kind of warning that things have to change in many ways. And maybe it could be um, a starting point for those changes. Nico, let's have a short break. Um, we yeah. asked you to bring us a guest gift. We love gifts, Bill and me. <laughs> so we asked you to bring us something, an object or whatever, an item that is um, important for you. And um, we are very curious what you brought us and why. Um, that's a picture of my brothers. Ah. Uh, mm-hmm. Smiling, two of them. Mm-hmm. The very beautiful daughters, oh, I have yes. to add. <laughs> so it's like a picture for a couple of years ago. And they're mm-hmm. both smiling. And the position they have, uh, they are in posing, is a position which reproducing a position from their uh, when they were babies, you know, babies. Ah. <laughs> so the fact I like about this picture is that they smile and they have a light on their eyes and um, the smiling, and they are beautiful women. Oh my god! Mm. Uh, yes, they are. <laughs> I am not their mother. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> uh, you know why I brought this picture, this gift to you is because my daughters have been my my compass for my life. Mm. Since I have mm. them, they have been my compass. And they've been, how to say, in some days when I was down, they've been the reason why I woke up and starting the day all over again. Mm. And still the reason why in some days I wake up and okay start over the, again so mm. they've been my 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 reason to to be 
And they mm. saved me from many things. I mean, they saved me from darkness many, many, many times. So, mm. Yeah, because I have nice. a darkness in myself, of course, mm. as all of us. And sometimes mm. I go deeper in this darkness. But these two souls have saved me in my soul all the time. And I think so. I, all my, my activism is because I want them to live in a better society. Mm -hmm. No problem. Thank you for this nice gift. We put it on our virtual um, gift shelf. Yes, thank you. <laughs> With all the other nice gifts we already received, didn't we, Bill? Yes, mm -hmm. yes, exactly. <laughs> But getting back to work, we <laughs> we want to talk about your work. I think we have to talk about feminism. And oh. <laughs> I'd like yeah. to ask you, when did you know or when did you decide to become a feminist? Oh, Bill, I think all my life I was a feminist. And <laughs> But I didn't know that it's called like that. Yeah, when I was a teenager, or I was a child. Oh, God. Do I have to say that or not? <laughs> it's up to you. Uh, you yes. it. I think oh, you just did answer it. If, if that's good enough for you, it's good. It has to be good enough for everybody else. Mm -hmm. okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was defending my mom all the time since I was a child uh -huh. and my uh -huh. aunts because they've been subjected to domestic violence. I was um, a spoiled child uh, of the large family. All large family have spoiled me and loved me because I was smart. I had this, you know, this privilege and the guts to fight with my uncles and everybody around because they mistreated their wives. My mom. I was fighting with my father all, all my life. I had to fight with my father. Um, that's where I think the the, the feminists started. My feminists started. And when I was working in conflicts in the 90s, um, I have worked a lot with Romani women and I have seen during the conflicts, you know, the community is rearranging and is disclosing every layers of its structures. The, In 1993, I wrote my first essay about during the post-conflict situations, you know. And um, I didn't know that it was about to be back feminist. And in 1997, I think, 97, yes, I was invited to the, it was Roma participation program of the Open Society Institute, you know. And it was a conference of Romani women. It was Rulko Kavczynski, the head of um, the RPP then, and he organized the women's conference. And then I have met then the, the Asbia Memendova, and I remember I met my soul sisters, is the Brashut, um, American Jewish historic feminist. Mm -hmm. And I was like, you know, um, during the conference, Questioning things, and I have brought a, a book with me from Letutigan. It was uh, dedicated to Romani women, and um, I know that there was a, a hearing in the Council of Europe in 1995, 96, and we have sent from Romania two or three Romani women. Um, so I was kind of, but my families have started to grow when I met Debra. And then I was invited to New York as a consultant of the Open Society Institute Network Women program to start strategizing together with Liliana Kovacheva from Bulgaria mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, to start strategizing uh, and thinking about the Romani women program under the Network Women program. So um, that was, I remember Deborah 
going online on Amazon, ordered <laughs> books for me. So um, if I owe to someone the knowledge about feminism, it gave me the first books of feminism. She, she gifted to me the Bell Hooks book, and mm-hmm. I Woman. So when I came back, I remember it was, then we moved to Warsaw, and then on the entire holiday, me and Nikolai were... were uh, sharing that book. <laughs> yeah, we shared that book because it was um, the book which gave me a new perspective on the, the things I've done. So that's mm-hmm. how I became a feminist. In a way, uh, unfortunately enough, it's um, in the current writings about Romani feminists because I didn't have time to write and I was mostly active. Mm-hmm. My contribution is so much highlighted. So. I have yeah. a question because you, you mentioned um, the feminist literature you were reading. We have this debate that yeah. feminism ignores, that the white feminism, let's say, let's say, ignores the needs of black women, of POC women, of Romani women. What is your opinion about this? Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, it's like it was <laughs> when I started mm. in 97, 98, it was this complete ignorance. And mm. I mean, for me, I remember, I, <laughs> I have to tell you this story, in 99, I was in Budapest. <laughs> So <laughs> in the Chocomi program have uh, invited me to uh, uh, participate to their network. Uh, it was a network of gender programs in all Europe, in Central Eastern Europe. So they said, okay, Nico, you come and we discuss about Romani women. I said, okay, I went to Budapest meeting. And in a way, I didn't expect it. I, I expected to be in a, a friendly environment, you know, I'm mm-hmm. women's rights activists. Wow. And it's, you know, I go to my to colleagues, you know, from human rights activism with humanistic perspective on things, you know. Mm-hmm. And during the meeting and my expose was like, I didn't, I had such a racist attitude from that gender coordinators, some of them, not all of them, of course, and that I, I got sick during the night. So mm-hmm. all the energy I have received. And then was the moment of environment that not automatically all other human rights activists working for other really uh, they start to love Roma. So oh, they have other different um, positive opinions. So it's like really that was an alignment moment for me when I understood part of my job is to really try to connect the two worlds and make the white feminism where that the Roma, Roma women have their needs and that they struggle inside with these combined identities and with um, essentialism from women's side, essentialism from uh, Roma side. So it was like all these debates about essentializing our identities, either you are a woman first, either you are Roma first, and mm-hmm. my Roma colleagues have started to question my, it's like what you are first Roma, you are true Roman in some articles in early 1999, 2000. So it was this entire, this entire debate about essentialism. Did it change now as we all talk about intersectionality and we start thinking all these fights together? Um, did you experience that it changed? I think it changed a lot, but not yeah, enough. Not enough. Mm-hmm. But yes. it's changed. I mean, it's really changed. And when I look around, it's really changed. 
and the feminist and Romani movement became one of that. So, I mean, to live a life where you witness that is really again a blessing, because um, mm. you know, starting this debate in '99 and be alive and be still present of this society, Roma society, yeah. and to see yeah. this is really a blessing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think so too, because uh, I, I wasn't so involved in the 90s, but I also had this feeling like this this whole aspect is missing and uh, I, I it actually kept me from getting involved to a certain extent. And I, I uh, seeing the change that there are enough people that have enough awareness about this to actually yeah, uh, help bring about some, imp- implement and institute some of these, yeah, some of this awareness, I think... Uh, yeah, it's not enough, but it's it's certainly a lot more than 20 years ago. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and it's like, also it's like LGBTQ wise, I was among the first ones to defend my LGBTQ colleagues um, from others. I had fights with people because of my colleagues, some of my colleagues. So um, for me, I think the, the drive was always the human humanism in us. And if another Roma is uh, questioning another Roma, then you do you reproduce the same thing which the Gaja are doing with us. So um, it's nothing different. It's the same mechanism which is doing is is in place. So for me, it was like I will never like another person to be treated as I was treated when I was a child or growing up. So um, why, <laughs> why? That's beautifully said, and I think everyone needs to hear that. That's, yeah. that's We need to hear that every day. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Nico, let's jump to another topic, arts and culture. <laughs> oh. <laughs> you once said, um, you can't fight racism without addressing art and culture. Can you explain to our listeners what you mean by this and why? Um, it's because um, <laughs> I realized... After it's like in September, uh, 29 years of activism with only three months of where my kids. So I realized that all the talking with always and activists and all the fightings, and you know, I don't deny they are important, they are very important. It doesn't touch the minds and souls of other people as art does, you know. It's important what we do, the, the politicians of the, of the cause. That's what I consider myself, a politician of the cause, even though I don't have a mandate for it from anyone. <laughs> for me, I realized how the expression of, um, of emotions and um, in arts touch the, the minds of other people more than any words I have done or debates I have put on. That's why... Um, and it's also because um, doing the the Roma Hive exercise in early, very early when we started the Roma Hive and started to look to the to the movement uh, from this arts perspective, and also being mm. in the Roma Museum in Bucharest together with my colleagues uh, in Romano Boutique at that time, and researching for the history and everything, I discovered that's a that's a huge legacy. Uh, Use poesy, mm. music, and this kind of stuff. So, um, being only civil rights move, uh, civil rights activists, we ignored that. So, for me, arts and culture is very important because that is the sort of people. 
Yeah, and it, it's both. It's it's both um, a tool of resistance and a way to show the yeah. richness and to to create a positive um, image of of the Roma and to to show their contribution to to cultural history. And I'm really jealous on our artists, and I told them sometimes because <laughs> yeah, I'm jealous because you can express your emotions and mm. pain and pride and all the spectrum of emotions in being Roma words. Which is like a, a complete kind of a therapy, if you ask me. But anyway, <laughs> I am really jealous of, of uh, and and I admire our artists, all of them. Doesn't matter what they do, admire them, mm. Mm. but the way they put forward emotions and their Roma identity. Yeah. Yeah, I think think you you expressed that beautifully because well, if you also look at politics and uh, any activist movement today. Emotions are valid data points. You have to address emotions. People have fear. Whether or not that fear is justified, mm -hmm. they the, the fear exists. It is there. And and I think if you don't have arts and culture to address fear or to express other emotions, I think, uh, uh, yeah, what you said is very important there. I'm going to change the subject again. Uh, moving on <laughs> to the next question, bouncing around a bit. Uh, this podcast, we aim to highlight the diversity of Roma and their different national characteristics and uh, heterogeneous culture. Uh, what is being Romani for you? Or what is, what is Romani pen for you? Romani Pe or Romani Pen, roughly translated as Romaniness or Romanihood, it is a noun created from the adjective Romani, which describes things coming from Roma peoples. The suffix Ipe is added to an adjective to create an abstract noun. Another example, Sasto, is healthy, Sastipen is health. Romani Pen can be quite a complex concept with many details which can describe behavior in certain situations ranging from cleanliness rituals and preparing food or simply conformity to group norms within a given community. Someone with Romani Pet does not deny their heritage. Programs which focus on improving the positive self-image of Roma focus on building an awareness of Romani Pen as a positive source of value for personal identity and belonging to the group or the groups of Romani peoples. It can also be referred to as what ties Roma together across distinct Romani communities as well, especially in the last 30 years. Often today, depending on the context, it can simply mean proud to be Roma. What is Romani pen for you? <laughs> Oh, God. How much time do we have left? <laughs> Take your time. <laughs> okay, let me, let me drink some coffee, you know. <laughs> so that's the hardest yeah, one? Yeah, <laughs> big, big, heavy question. No, 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 that's that's a that's a good answer. I like that. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, it, it is. I just kind of like threw that at you and it's like the, it is all of a sudden a big change. But uh, you mentioned a little bit of it, about it earlier. You talked about, you know, you had some ideas and, and there are all these things that could enter into it. And yeah, maybe it's changed for you over over time or you don't have a fixed definition. Maybe you I do. Mean, for me, Romani Pen became in my life, came in my life um, while I was an activist. In my family, Romani Pen was not part of our vocabulary. 
was my Romani identity was everyday played, as I told you. And it, it gave me, for example, the fact that when to my my father's family, I learned Romanes when I was a child. And all my summers, we went there and it was a connection with people, which gave me the connection with my large family was one of my part of my identity. Being Roma was these connections, these ties I had with my, my large family. Also, for me, being Roma was in the time the racism of the others was embodied. I cannot deny the fact that being Roma is not only about, for me, was not only um, the ties with my large family and my cousins and my aunts and these two different, because I belong to two different groups of Roma, like Kudarash family and musician family. And one was richer, social status better than the other. So it's like I had to somehow be part of a universe where the Romani identity has been played in different ways. For me, the racism was part of my identity as well. I mean, I was shaped by the racism of the others. But I also was shaped by the language. I was shaped by the stories of my aunts, by the attitudes of my family towards the others, and also um, the stories of my grandfather <laughs> from my mother's side, because I, uh, he used to tell us stories about his his uh, travels when he was a musician and about the aristocracy and all these stories about being Roma in his youth. So in a way, that was how I grew up. But when I became an activist, Romani Pen became a debate when we started to discuss about European Roma and Rebels Forum. So it was this kind of um, power relationship of us, I was part of the group, but not so active because Rusko Kapczynski, Nikolai, um, it was Miranda, who was from Finland, uh-huh. it was Soraya Post, it was um, Andre in the beginning. Andre and Nikolai, they were in the beginning, but then they, they, they were not so much involved. Um, it was Ashmet Elezovsky from Macedonia. So many, many people were involved in the time. And I was really, again, privileged to have witnessed these debates among them because I grew up with these debates among these kind of big figures in the Roman world, <laughs> Nikolai and Andrei and Rusko. Um, so for me, Romani Pen became a, a political subject in the time when the European Roman Interpols Forum started. And in time, I, I positioned myself in a in an opposition to the European Travels Forum. Um, in, because in the European, uh, the chart of Romani rights of the European Travel, Romani Travels Forum said there's something about Roma identity. Uh, the Roma are the ones who respect Romani Pen. So then the discussion with Nicolae started of what is Romani Pen for us uh-huh. and how we reconstruct Romani Pen. So for me, my feminism gave me the, the perspective of power on everything I, I have seen around me. And I said, who the hell we are to define what is Romani Pen first. <laughs> then I said, okay, to myself, all nations have been constructed by uh, by uh, intellectuals and political people, and they defined who the Romanians are. 
and what the Romanian, what Romania means or what Germany means. No, so I said, okay, we are no different than the others. So it's normal. Then my feminism also said. But if we want to be respected equal, then we have to respect our people inside. And it all already came through the stories I told you about fighting about my women colleagues, or fighting about LGBT colleagues, and also fighting with some Roma men who beat their wives at home. So where is question how can you be a Roma right activist when you beat your wife at home? You yeah, yeah. I don't yeah, I don't trust important. what you say in public. You I don't trust what you say in public, you know. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. I cannot I cannot trust you that you want the good things for our people when you don't respect your wife at home. So mm-hmm. um yeah. all the discussion was what uh, thing has to do with another and I said a lot. Because it's about you and the coherence of, of your beliefs and your beliefs. So anyway, the whole, whole Romanian question uh, started to be a permanent uh, question and preoccupation of ours, especially before Nicolae died. So for me now, Romanian, and it's also arts and culture, I realized, because with my feminism and during the tough debates with Nicolae, and the, the accusations from others in the Roma movement. I have said, okay, maybe they're right. What do I do with my Romani feminism? I destroy some of the practices. Yeah, right. What do I put in place? So I started to construct it. I, I said, I deconstruct this, right? What do I construct it? What do I put in place? So I said, I have my responsibility as a Romani feminist who questions this, you know, um, in practices and wants to delete these practices if it's possible to put something else in place. Um, so that's where I started to become involved in in this whole arts history and commemoration. Of, uh, mm-hmm. So for me it was like uh, from the, the intellectual debate I had with Nicolae to put in practice a little bit a reconstruction of the Romani pen, which is like more modern Romani pen, which is based on the creation, the power of creation of this of these people. We have an immense drive for creation. I mean, it's like, <laughs> I cannot believe. I mean, it's like, we have created so much. And every day we create even <laughs> these kind of strategies to survive and to go from the most remote village in Romania to come in center of London. It's like, you know, no boundaries of the imagination. I like hearing that. And I think it's very important as well, because what feminism brings, what the idea of creating and recon- not necessarily reconstruction, but adding and creating to this idea with keeping in mind what you said of of not recreating the destructive tendency uh, that's imposed from others outside onto us, that we don't recreate that inside. I mm. think if we don't do that, it's a kind of bibachtalo uh, circle, basically. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and, yeah. and and it's what you are doing yeah. is you're making Romani Pem more Romani. Basically, mm-hmm. look at, look from within to create something new, as opposed yeah. to accept what's coming from outside. I mean, like nationalism. You know, you look at nationalist movements. You know, the. Austria-Hungarian Empire, and then the Czechs became independent. But what did the Czechs do to the Slovaks? And then the Slovaks, what did they do to the Roma? And everything is reproduced and reproduced and reproduced. And yeah. uh, we have to stop this. And I think that this this is an excellent example of how we stop this. Hmm. Yeah, it's because, you know, it's this circle of, it's like in a, a psychotherapy, you know? The psychotherapy uh, of trauma it's like you have to break the circle of the vicious circle of the legacy you have through the maternal side, right? 
So yep. from my point of view, that's for us as a Roma nation, we have to break the circle. And I will not want to reproduce the old... I mean, that's why for me, feminism and all the debate I had with Nikolai and all this, uh, how to say, reflection. And you know, both of you, that I'm very yeah. self-reflection and everything. I, I reflect mm-hmm. on everything I do. I don't speak a lot about it. And it's pity, I think. And I don't write a lot of people. And that's, again, pity. Because for me, the construction of Roma nation should not reproduce what others made us to be today. It should be a society which is beyond of this, you know, inherited trauma and beyond of what the societies have taught us, you know. For me, the Romani band today is, uh, it's, I think every day I add something to, to the Romani band because uh, the work I do and because I, I help my people and I support my people because I believe that, I think that all of us who has a privilege in this world or Roma, should give the others. It's not comfortable, believe me. It's not. And all my life I had instances when I I have been offended and aggressed and everything. But as a matter, it's like my my whole life is the responsibility to serve my nation, to serve my people. And I to serve my people because I think part of the Romanian should be this responsibility of the elites because if the elites don't do anything and we are stuck in our closed society and we don't go out to our people then there's no Romani pen, there's no nation there mm-hmm. for me yeah. building a nation is everyday effort I do it from a deep belief it's like a service for my people and because mm-hmm. I consider myself as I told you one of the elites of this people of this nation and as an elite I have the responsibility to serve my people like a like a mm. civil servant of a, in a government, right? Mm. Yeah. So um, yeah. Yeah, I know that in it's... my interview I said that I would like to be the president, but anyway. <laughs> yeah, 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 I remember. I remember. I w- I'm gonna ask this later. <laughs> no, but I think it's it's very good and, and very important that you say that um, this responsibility you're talking about, that the Roma elite of academics and activists do take and you once called it it's your duty to build a safety net for the community. So yes. not it's not only about fighting but also about protecting and that's really what you are doing. That's really impressive and important. Um, Before we talk about Romanistan, um, and we certainly will because this podcast is about uh, the utopia, the Romatopia, let's play another game. We are going to read you some terms and you have to answer spontaneously. So without thinking, just with uh, one word or or a very short sentence. Okay. Are you prepared? Are you ready? (laughs) Good. So... Women. Power. Community. Solidarity. Resistance. Hmm. Power. Nature. Peace. Gender. <laughs> Bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, guys. No, that's Can good. You... That's good. <laughs> It's a social construct. Well, that's... <laughs> mm-hmm. Home. Peace. Yesterday. Great. <laughs> mm-hmm. Tomorrow. Hope. 
Uh-huh. Well, the next word for me is hope. <laughs> <laughs> hope. Dream. Okay. Europe. Bullshit. <laughs> Politics. These are boundaries. I don't like it. I mean, it's like I don't like boundaries. Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry, guys. No, that's good. <laughs> okay. Next word for me, uh, Dilino. Um, fun. <laughs> okay, uh, Bachtalo. Bachtalo, Bachtalo. I don't know. Best. <laughs> okay. Uh, Gajo. <laughs> I don't like this. I don't like this word. I never liked it. Okay. Anti-gypsyism. Hate. Mm. <laughs> Great. Thank you. Thank you. That's the end of our little game. Dilno is the Anglo-Romani word for fool or foolish. Dilino is the Central European version of the same word. It's the diminutive of the word dilo. This is originally an adjective, but can be used as a noun. And in both cases, even people who don't know Romani very well will often know this word. Bok is the Anglo-Romani word for luck. Its Central European version, bacht, means luck or happiness. Bachtalo is the adjective, means happy or lucky. It's typically used in a greeting, Teoves Bachtelo, may you be happy and lucky. Gorjo is the Anglo-Romani word for a non-Romani person. In Central European Romani, the word is gajo. In its original sense, it's not pejorative. Depending on context and tone of voice, it can be pejorative, and people not familiar with the Romani language often presume this negative meaning. Uh, let's talk about Romanistan. Uh, let's talk. We, we already uh, talked about it a bit. Let's talk about the utopia. Let's dream of Romanistan. Romanistan is the name of a proposed country for the Romani people. In the early 1950s, Roma leaders petitioned at the United Nations for the creation of their own state, but their petition was rejected. The creation of such a state was also suggested by the leaders of a Macedonian party in the early 1990s, with the aim of the complete emancipation of Romani people. Romanistan remains an utopia. The notion of Romanistan is always a source of inspiration for artistic and activist work by Roma. What, Nico, what is your Romanistan? It's a country, it's a virtual space. What is For it? For me, it's a, um, it's a virtual space. In my mm-hmm. modern society, maybe you would have asked me 20 years ago, I wouldn't say that. For me, mm-hmm. it's a virtual space where there's plenty of resources to protect our people, as I said earlier, and to build this network of support and make it safe, uh, safety net for all our people, wherever they are. A space where young people find that you can be, uh, uh, you can live uh, the Roma identity with dignity wherever you are, and that there's no one who should tell you how to live it. That's, of course, for me, Romanistan is also should have some rules as all nations. <laughs> I repeat myself, it should also Romani bend for me, and Romanistan should become the moral compass in everything we do every, every day. Mm-hmm. 
our life. So mm-hmm. it should be internalized as much as others internalize the values of their holy books, you know. Mm-hmm. This Bible or Quran doesn't matter, but we have to build this, um, this moral compass for our people and for ourselves. Mm-hmm. So for me, uh, it's a virtual uh, space where in case of danger and in case of of need, people know that it's a space where you can ask for help. There's a space where you can express your your fears, your identity in different ways. That there's a space where you 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 find yourself. And by virtual space, do you mean that I don't know those the people of Romanistan get their passport, but they do not have a country or do not have land? Or do you rather mean like Romanistan is a notion, um, ethic guidelines, joint values that serve like what you called uh, the moral compass? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's no land for sure because I, I mm. don't like the idea of uh, of having a, a fight for a land. It's not for me something which um, our nation should do. But it's a uh, it's moral. Uh, it's it's really a kind of a it's a virtual space. Really, it's a space which you occupy virtually. It's also a space, not physical, but how you call this. State of mind. It's a state of mm-hmm. soul. It's a state of of everything you want in order to you to feel uh, protected and good wherever you are. So, and for me, the virtual space is the space where you find these resources in order for you to become active. And I always speak about the social empathy of our people and uh, where you find yourself. You know and Also where you find resources, you know, because people, mm-hmm. all nations and all people are attracted by resources. So what this virtual space and Romanistan gives you as a as a member of it. So what are the resources we give to people? Um, so for me, um, the resources related to the protection of our people, wherever they are, it's very important that you protect our people. We protect our people. And that's a virtual space. is a space where they can relate on and ask for protection and for help. Bill, what do you think about the idea of Romanistan? Did you ever think about it? How does your Romanistan look like? I think well, it sounds like I'm going to repeat everything that Nico just said because <laughs> I, I more or less agree with it. But yeah, if you would have asked me 20 years ago or 10 years ago, I would say yeah no i i don't want it i don't need it um mm-hmm. and 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 from a point of view of it being like a physical space no uh there's 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 no point uh, we've survived without it and we can we we will continue to survive without it but as a state of mind it's because it does exist as a state of mind and it needs to be a state of mind for a lot more people and it is a kind of virtual space so i would i would see it as that it's it's it is the source of energy or it it attracts people to there is an attraction there to 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 defend what exists and to create something new that's Mm -hmm. that's what it should be in my opinion how do you create that well everybody contributes to that so it's a virtual space for creating uh an awareness that we all can do Mm -hmm. whatever that may be 
Yeah, yeah. And it seemed to be an inspiring idea because it's really obvious that um, this notion of Romanistan comes up again and again in exhibitions, in publications, in cultural projects. Um, so it, it really is a laboratory somehow, uh, like people give a lot of energy in it. It's a space where you can figure out and dream of a yeah of a better reality, of a better future. Yeah, I think I think that that the the image of the laboratory fits very well for me because there's experiments that we have to perform and we have to explore and find new things uh, because, uh, like we said before, we don't want to just recreate the same old stuff and. 10 years ago, or if you just throw out Romanistan and I think I think of land and I think of a country, then I think, no, I don't want to recreate the old junk anymore. Mm. Where this, there has to be something new. So a laboratory, uh, uh, a think tank, uh, something that's that's going to be created and is, is in, in continual process of creation. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Nico, is Romanistan your utopia and your dream for Europe? For me, Europe is a construction and it's like, you know, uh, I mean, it's a political construction in which I live and I have to live in and we have to bend with the rules that we are living in these societies. But in the same time, for me, Europe and the whole question of the European Union and it's now questioned by Brexit and um, the whole and the pandemic and everything, um, it demonstrated that Europe Is, it should be also a state of spirit. It's not longer... Uh, the pandemic showed that, you know, because yep. it's mm. no longer questions of border of nations and languages. We lived the same bad experiences during the COVID and this, you know, and we lived the, the same abuses from power. So for me, um, Utopia for Europe will be almost the same as Romanistan, but for mm. me... Utopia for Europe would be what all the, you know, the people of European Union founders have thought about it. It's also the question of how you discuss about what is happening now about white supremacy everywhere. And for me, the whole constructions, political constructions around me are dangerous nowadays because they leave the space for um, people to express this these uh, ghosts and after the past because UK is thinking that it's still an empire but it's not France as well so um, mm. I think in the mental collective of the Europe now especially the Western European countries is that they think they are the nations which used to be because they have historically uh, acted in the collective mental of being an imperium, but they are no longer an imperium. I think mm. that that all the crisis around us is uh, partially because of this, because all the former imperiums in Europe, they are no longer imperiums, and people and politicians and collective mental should change. And it's very difficult to understand that you are an island, a small island, and not an imperium any longer. It's really interesting how... Europe is redefining itself today, but it's also a danger. I don't know, but since I live here in UK, I'm trying to understand how Western European position itself. And it's really it's interesting to see this, this post-colony. I mean, I know this post-colonialism was in the 70s, but nevertheless in mental collective and in some of the 
the sick minds of politicians, some of the politicians, is not gone. Is this lack of humbleness, lack of um, touch of reality? So mm-hmm. it's like France as well, Spain and all these big powers, which used to be big powers. They are nations like all the others. So it's a reconfiguration of Europe today. Mm-hmm. And I think Roma has a very important role in it. And I mean, we could play an important role in it. And we could demonstrate to others that having this Romanistan across borders and non-borders is possible. And it's it's challenging for the others. I think we, Roma, are always been... We have always been challenging the systems around us. And yeah. I think even today we are challenging Europe. Yeah, because uh, Roma are a transnational community and that is already challenging. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you mentioned about being underground, like yeah. underground as in being maybe avant-garde. Can you can you express a little bit more about your your Romatopia? What, how, how does that fit in? What, what's your vision there? <laughs> the underground one yeah <laughs> <laughs> i mean all the all the uh, if i if i think about arts right all the arts movements which provoke change in arts and provoke the uh, establishment of the arts were underground in the beginning so for me mm-hmm. romatopia is an underground which starts in, as an underground movement because it's no space for the mainstream mm-hmm. um, and you end up provoking the others and then you enter in mainstream but I don't know how to enter in the mainstream because I, I wouldn't like to be part of all these um, you know maybe I'm wrong I can be because I'm a part of a generation of uh, people who does not really know how to use my power I don't know how to use my power I never knew even though I had it all the time. So um, I think for me, the Romatopia is not, I don't. I wouldn't like to be in the United Nations. What is United Nations Day? What is Council of Europe Day? What is OEC today, you know? Mm-hmm. Like these intergovernmental organizations which really regulate the European Union. So um, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong. I know that some of my younger colleagues would uh, criticize me for that. That's a very um, uh, left-wing oriented uh, approach to this underground country. But it's like, you know, maybe you enter in mainstream later on and we see how we enter in the mainstream and which forms and how we can, for example, influence the politics in the countries where people, our people, our nation sits. So that's my fault. My, my thoughts are not yet there because this should be, for example, um, and didn't think about I thought about the structure in the Rom, in the Romanistan and uh, I, I've said that about I said about that but um, in relation to other political structures and to the power to the real power with the uh, real power structures which we have around us then I, my thought is not yet so articulated for me underground means that you start to challenge current political sciences, the current politics, the classical notion of a state. Mm, But yeah. um, So that's for me underground. Like in arts, you know. Mm. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's that's why when you said that, I really wanted to hear you develop that. And I mm. think that's, that's my, I want to share, I share that vision. I think that, you know, being underground, being avant-garde, being something that attracts people to want to be this way or want to do things this way. Uh, once you attract people and you're on the cutting edge, you're the first ones to do something. Eventually people come around to it. And that's, that's how the underground comes to the mainstream is mm -hmm. it's through this attraction and, and it's through these positive ideas and showing how, you know, yeah, mm -hmm. a, a better vision for art, better vision for culture, better vision for politics, whatever, whatever you have. Uh, I, I, I like that idea of the underground. I, I haven't actually heard it said out loud, but I, 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 I that's why I want <laughs> I have to the courage to say it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And it sounds good. Absolutely. Really Very interesting. Also, this idea of, um, yeah, I mean, um, it's deconstruction work and you do this from from the underground and uh, not from within the system somewhere, but, but really uh, you start uh, deconstructing the basis of the wrong system, let's say. And it's also interesting that you say that maybe it needs the underground that this power can really unfold. I mean, uh, I'm a... I'm deconstructive and reconstructive I mean I have already I mean with my feminism I have done that not only mm. with my feminism but with all my activism I have I don't know I hope that I can I will have this time to, to write all these things sometimes yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I think we all want you to write this, and I think you have a big <laughs> audience that's ready and waiting for whenever you're ready to, to have it. Absolutely. We want, we want to read it. <laughs> Nico, let's finish this, this amazing and thought-provoking um, conversation with one last little game. Imagine if you could ask one question on all radio, TV, print media in Europe for one day, what question would this be? Oh my God, that's really challenging, Isabel. Yeah. <laughs> um, I would ask people if the hate they feel towards us make them feel better. Yeah, very good question. Yeah. If the hate towards Roma make them feel better. Yeah, brilliant answer. Nico, thank you so much for this conversation. I really, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. I hope we were not too challenging. <laughs> no, I mean, but you know that I like challenges. You know me very well. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. I know, I know. <laughs> Thanks for being with us for the last, uh, last hours. Um, it was so nice talking. Thank to you. you very much. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Romatopia is supported by the Federal Agency for Civic Education and the Council of Europe Roma and Travelers team. Idea and concept, Isabel Rabe. Romatopia is hosted and edited by Isabel Rabe and William Biela and directed by Katja Lehmann. Sound design by Selamet and Kefait Prizreni. Cover motif by Daniel Baker. Production, Media Bricks Berlin 2020.